Amen. Amen. 2021. It is almost over. Amen. Amen. It is, uh, it is kind of nice to have a year such as 2021 in the rear view. Um, it's been a challenging year. Um, boy, oh boy, I, I've probably done more funerals this year than I've ever had a year of doing. And we've been through more times of loss and difficulty in this season. There's been more divisiveness in this time. There's been more challenges that have come. These cultural challenges, different things from different places that we never expected to see attacks that would come in places where we would be confronted in our own personal lives, also as a church. There has been one of those years where uh, there has been a full-on attack, or even if it isn't all demonic in nature, it's certainly the circumstances that the enemy can use to bring a confrontation to our life. To make us feel like, uh, you know, God, where are you? But in it all, we, we also need to understand that, that God is in the midst of the difficult times, that God is in the midst of the trials and the troubles. You know, the scripture tells us, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. And then when it comes, we all get so frantic going, oh God, oh no, where are you? And again, not that God is the creator of those things, but isn't it amazing that our God is able to take any of those things that have happened and use them for glory in our life, in, in the kingdom, for his glory? That God is able to use and to take all of those things, whatever it is that's gone on, and to use them if we will allow him to. That this year is a year when, man, oh man, we have, it's been tough. But I also know that as a woman in labor, when that birth comes, that's a difficult time. Labor is hard. It's difficult. Yet that baby comes and man, there's a, a new life. And I believe that 2022 is a time of new life. That God has breakthroughs that will come as a result of some of the transformation that we allow God to move in our lives with from the circumstances of this past year. As devastating as they may be, as hard as and difficult as it might be, God is still able to use, to take those things and to use them in our lives. So I'm excited for what God has for 2022, excited for what God is going to do. I, uh, Lauren reminded me, I, I did give you the, the wrong date uh, for us taking this time of fasting. I meant for that Monday. I guess that's the third. I thought it was the second, but I want to have next week to announce to the church as well. So Put that in your calendar. You can change that around. Start it on Monday, and then we'll go for 10 days. I am going to continue in Luke chapter 6 with you, and this is something that is, uh, I believe this is a foundational place of Jesus' teaching, where he is beginning to share some things with us in his style of teaching that is revolutionary. I think that what you'll hear today and what you'll see through the written word of God is God bringing this transformative power, this complete new kingdom, this upside-down world that he is going to introduce and then give you and I a choice. And, and I'll bring that at the end, talk a little bit more about that. But you can open up, your, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't, or if you have your phone, you can follow along in your own Bible app. Or let me suggest this. Go to the church app. 
Go to the app store and open up New Life of Tooele and, and, and download the app. Make sure you turn the notifications on. I promise we're not going to bombard you with a whole bunch of things, but, you know, I woke up this morning and last night we didn't know what was going to happen. I wasn't sure if when I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning if we were going to have two feet of snow or any snow. I, I had no idea what was going to happen. But if there were things that happened and if we needed to get word out to you that, you know, we, we couldn't have service or something like that, that is a, uh, the app is the way in which we would send that out to you. So please make sure that you put that in and we'll use it. We'll remind you of some things coming up and just make sure that you download that. Because inside of that, if you, uh, if, what is it on the bottom that you go to? Or that, uh, what's that? Yeah, there's a place for the sermon notes, but you get to it through the media. So on the bottom, push the media. It'll take you to the sermon notes. And then the sermon notes, you can open up and follow along, have some notes. You can fill in the blank, and it'll hopefully help you to stay plugged in with what we're doing. Hey, I spent a lot of time making those up. So <laughs> just pretend, okay? Make it look like while you're playing solitaire that you're actually typing notes answers in there. But in uh, Luke chapter 6, we are going to begin or move into, and I'm going to take the time to go through it, because I think as I've been reading through this, these, this sermon, uh, it is absolutely amazing. I mean, there has never been a teacher like Jesus. And uh, I, I certainly don't want to try to reteach his message, because certainly he is the best that's ever been. And I want to declare some things that I believe we can glean from this, but we're looking at this, what is called, you've heard it, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins to declare the Beatitudes, the, the blessings. It's recorded in a couple of different places in the scripture. You'll find it in Matthew, you'll find it in his gospel, and you'll also find it in the gospel of Luke. And inside of those two uh, those two narrations as to what they have written, you'll find that there are a lot of things that are similar. You're going to find, we'll talk a little bit about this, some of the things that are distinctive, some of the things that, that each one you know, represents. I suppose for each and every one of us, if we were to watch an event or see something that happened or hear of people that told us about an event that have, of what had happened as an eyewitness testimony, we would probably all come up with little variations as to what we heard, what we saw what we experienced, and that's what happens with these two guys. I actually, I went through, and if you read through these, uh, the, the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find in Matthew's Gospel that it will take you about seven minutes to read through that. Now, I'm not a real fast reader, so some of you can probably do it faster than that even. So it'll take you about seven minutes. If you read through Luke, Luke will take you two minutes to read through this sermon that Jesus is preaching here. Now, I have a funny feeling that the sermon was actually a lot longer than that. Now, you know, one of the things, I, I, Brother Thomas, you know, they have in their culture, he's from uh, Nigeria, and uh, Brother Thomas, they have services that start early in the morning, and they go for hours. And I've asked him before, how do in the world, you guys, how do, they, how do people stay there all day long for something like that? And he said, oh man, people would revolt if we went any less. Some of these people have walked for hours to come to church. And if I just gave them a 45-minute sermon, they would be upset. They'd go find another church. Imagine that. People going to find another church because the sermon was too short. <laughs> Whatever, daughter. <laughs> 
I, I, I just, I think, you know, there's people that had traveled from, I mean, I'll share this with you, from a large distance to come and to hear Jesus. They came to meet with Jesus. They came because they were sick. Some of these people traveled, I mean, we don't even like to get in our car and drive down to church, you know, when we're not feeling real well. These people were sick. Some of them were desperately ill, and they traveled for some days to come and to meet with Jesus and to see him and to hear him teach and preach and be healed. You know, they came, spent, they, they, some of them spent their life's fortune trying to get to where Jesus was. I just don't think that Jesus would give them a two-minute sermon. So I think what we get, we get our, what we'll call the first century version of Cliff Notes. But Jesus gives a, the word of God is a well. And, and we may get the cliff note version, but underneath the surface, there is a depth of God's word. There's a depth of what God did and what God would have spoken in the midst of all of this. And so we're going to dive into this and see what we can glean from this Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. So let's, before we open up the scriptures, let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and good. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and just as you walked the earth in the flesh, I thank you, Lord God, that your presence is still here with us, that, God, you love us the same way you loved the people in Scripture, that, God, you care for us in the same way you cared for the people of, in Scripture. That, God, you have grace for us just as you had grace for those in that day. And I thank you, Father God, that your word has been delivered to us. And I pray that we would see you in it. I pray today, Lord, I ask that you would unstop deaf ears. Let us hear the word, possibly for the first time. Open up blind eyes that we might see you. Help us, Lord God, to declare the goodness with us being able to speak and to sing and to give thanks unto you. Holy Spirit, come, enlighten in our hearts the very word of the living God. And we receive that from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in Luke chapter six, I wanna begin by just giving some context, some sharing with you some things that obviously we can see from the scripture. You'll, you'll need to Again, open up your heart, open up your mind to see some of the things that are going on here and uh, that we can get a depth so that we can fully understand the teaching that Jesus wants to bring. So in context, first thing we look at here in verse 17, it says, and, uh, and he came down with them and stood at a level place. Now this is one of the first places that you'll see a little bit of a difference between Matthew's uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke's Gospel. Luke says, it says here in Luke that he stood on a level place. Matthew's Gospel, it says he went up onto the mountainside. But what would have happened, and again, we don't know exactly where the Sermon on the Mount was given. We don't know exactly where it was preached, where Jesus did this. Personally, I think it's a good thing we don't know, <clears throat> even in the places where they think they might have possibly had the Sermon on the Mount. They've built churches and monuments and all sorts of things. And honestly, when that happens, people tend to come and worship the place. And so I'm really glad we don't know exactly where this is because now what we can do is we can hear the very word of God without being confused by a place. 
And so I, I believe it was on a mountainside. I, it may very well have had a, a view of the Sea of Galilee from where they all were. And they went up onto this mountain. There was a terrace, I'm sure, a flat spot where they could all gather together. And Jesus stood on that flat spot. And there were probably people gathered around him, probably people up on the mountainside that were listening to him, possibly some people that were gathered even below him. There was a great crowd of people that were there gathered all around because they had come to hear Jesus. And it goes on, it says, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. And, and this is where, again, it is, he's coming from. And I would challenge you to get out a Bible map and take a look at the spans of area that this description covers. It comes people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So again, it's a large area. It's over 100 miles that, that's between those areas that people are being drawn from. And he goes on and he says in verse 18, they, these people, they all came to hear him and be healed of their disease. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him and healed them all. Amazing story that we begin with here. But, you know, when Scripture talks about Jesus, we, we sometimes get obscured to the fact that Jesus was drawing these large crowds of people. These large crowds were coming from all around the region, and they were coming from all these different places to see Jesus. Now, in that day, this was unusual. They didn't have large gatherings like this. They didn't have large groups of people that came together. And it really does begin by showing us about the magnetic, the powerful, the, the awestruck personality of Jesus to draw people unto himself like that. The power of God that moved through him. The ability to heal, the ability to deliver. The, just this, this presence that just drew people to him. But sometimes we look at that, and I really do think that we look at the way things are today, and we don't necessarily look at the way things were then, and it obscures our view of what was going on in that time. If you, if you look, you, you search it, you can find that in, in Nazareth today, today, there are about 250,000 people that live in Nazareth. So it's a pretty big community. Well, if you look at the area, the little towns and all the villages that are surrounding that, and if you look at what the populations of some of these, and some of these little towns weren't even there when Jesus was. They, they came after that. And in a lot of these little towns now, you'll see, if you look, populations, some of them, populations, 500, some of them are, you know, are 5,000, some of them are 10,000, you know, they're, they're these, still these small little villages, but there's still thousands of people that are inside of these little towns. Some of them up to 50,000 people living in what are really, at this time, totally obscure little tiny towns. And we can get confused when we look at that, thinking about the crowds that Jesus was, was drawing. Because, again, it was different in the day in which Jesus lived. Things were completely upside down in that. Nazareth in that time, Nazareth was only probably 50 to 100 people. I mean, that's, that's if you count it out, that's maybe 10, 15 families. Nazareth could have had a population that was no more than the number of people that are here in church today. I mean, that's the city. That's how many people were here in this town. 
Well, when you look at Jesus drawing these large crowds, these multitudes, you got to understand that he has to, it has to draw from this wide, expansive geographic area because there wasn't any areas where there were that number of people in one place to be able to draw a crowd from. So there's these wide geographic areas that people are coming from and whole towns would have had to have come. I mean, if you're looking at a population of 50 people in a town, how many towns would it take to bring in the kind of numbers that were coming? The synagogues in these little towns, the synagogues, they, they were only built to handle 20, maybe 30 people. So Jesus wasn't, I mean, he did go to the synagogues, but he wasn't, at this point, going to the synagogues to preach or to teach. Jesus, at this point, was forced to go to these open-air Areas like this, where he was up on a terrace, or at times we saw that he was from a fishing boat that he was preaching. He went to these different places like that because there weren't, they didn't have mega churches where they could promote Jesus and invite Jesus to come in as a special guest speaker. They didn't have stadiums that the disciples could rent. There weren't sound systems that people could, you know, go out there so that everybody could hear. They, they didn't have all of those things at that time. And then also in these places, man, he was gathering these great crowds, and these crowds were filled with many, many men, many, many women. But in that day, these, these people that were coming, most of them were illiterate. None of them, I mean, in that day and age, most people couldn't read. Most people had never been taught, especially the women. The women, they just did not know how to read. And, yet, and honestly, even just a small percentage of the men were able to read. Very, very few were able. So if Nazareth was a town of a size like this, that means by the statistics that there was probably four or five men in the crowd that were able to read. And that was it. And because of their ability to read, they would be the ones that were invited to stand up in the synagogue. Not because they were anointed, not because of anything else other than the fact they can read. And so they were invited to come up and to open up the scrolls and to read the scriptures. And, and that's how they decided who got to read, was by being able to read. I mean, it makes sense, right? So all of that being said, understand this, that for Jesus to be a rabbi, for Jesus to be an educated man who was able to read and able to, he was literate, coming from a small town, that was really, that was really strange. That was not usual. And for Jesus to be able to draw the kind of enormous crowds, that never happened before. They didn't, they didn't come for anybody like they were coming for Jesus. And when you read through the scriptures, you'll see, and sometimes, again, we take it for granted. You see that as you're reading through, like in John's gospel, they say that, you know, there was 5,000 men that came to Jesus, right? You've read that. Well, that was the men. So in that crowd that day, there were also women and children that were there. There probably, that day that John is talking about, there were probably about 20,000 people that came to, to, to hear Jesus preach. So Jesus is drawing these huge crowds of people. People are coming from all over the place. Whole villages had to shut down. Whole towns had to have been emptied out. Shops that were closed for long periods of time. People that were making this long journey by foot, 
Some of them traveled over 100 miles to be able to come to the place where Jesus was teaching at. And these people were coming just to meet Jesus, just to hear Jesus. They'd all heard about him. I mean, think how the news of Jesus was spreading as people would go from city to city talking about making you know, deals and trades and all these things that were on the trade routes and people all along the way talking about Jesus. Have you guys heard about this man, Jesus, who heals, who delivers? How you, we heard him preach. It was amazing. You should hear him. And the news is spreading. It's spreading to regions that are far and wide. People from all over the place are hearing. Women are gathering together at the well and they're drawing up water. Asking, Did you hear about Jesus? Have you heard about him? Imagine what it was like to have been, in that day, one of the, the guys reading the scriptures in the synagogue. Read the scriptures and first thing everybody wants to know is, well, what about Jesus? I wonder what Jesus is doing today. I wonder where Jesus is preaching on. I wonder what Jesus, that sure sounds like Jesus. People from all over the place are hearing about Jesus. Conversations are breaking out all over the place where people are being told about Jesus, about the magnificent authority and the ability he had to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And now these explosive, huge gatherings are starting to be drawn to him and people are coming from all over the area, from the regions all around, from the coast. They're coming from the hills. They're coming from all over the place. They're coming to see Jesus. And that's this crowd of people that are coming. That's what's going on in this time. But the question I want to ask is, who are they? Who are these people? I mean, they're people from somewhere, but who are these people? And the truth is, these people are just common, simple people. These are, just, these are just ordinary people. You don't think about it. Most of these people were marginal. Most of the people that were coming to Jesus were illiterate. Most of them had no ability to read. Most of them, for all of their life, had been looked down on. Most of them, for most of their life, had no sense of acceptance by any sort of authority in their life. Most of them depending on where they were, had menial jobs, just trying, not trying to get ahead, just trying to survive. Those who lived coast to the coast were probably fishermen. Probably, if they had a boat, they, they were probably blessed. Trying to make a living by just going out and catching a few fish. Some of them probably had fish markets where they would sell out of a window in their house the fish that they bought from those fishermen that had gone out the night before. Just trying to survive. Those that were up in the hill country, probably had, most of them probably had you know, a few sheep a few livestock, a herd of something that was just a couple of animals that they were taking care of, trying to keep alive so that they could make a living. Maybe they grew some, uh, some vegetables and had a farm or a small garden where they tried to make enough or raise enough vegetables to live and maybe a little bit extra just so they could buy some of the necessities that they needed. These were simple people. These were rural people. These were, were people that, that were common, people that were poor, people from all over the place. You know, the, the Bible tells most of these people, the Jewish people, most of them, they, they would save for, up, they, some of them saved for a lifetime. 
to raise them just enough money so that they could make the trip to Jerusalem to go to the temple to have enough to, to, to buy a, a bird so that they had the offering of the poor so that they could go on this trip of a lifetime. Well, here these people are coming to see Jesus laying down everything to come to him, shutting down their business, pulling their fishing boats ashore, leaving the animals behind to go because they'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard about this man who came. These people were simple people. You know, the life expectancy during that time was people, the life expectancy was in the 30s or 40s. The infant mortality rate was disgustingly high. But they had nowhere to turn. These were people, some of them, they had to walk miles just to draw water from a well to bring back to feed the animals, or to water the family. They had no heating. They had no plumbing. There was no toilet in the house. No lights, nothing. There was nothing. Most of the homes in that time, in those small little villages, were 600, 700 square feet houses. And the people, the, the people would live in part of it, and in the other part would live their animals. Not their pets. Their livestock. What, what do you think of when you think of people that live with livestock in their home? <laughs> tell you what this is where these people were, were at they lived with their livestock these were, these were simple people these were people they were poor they honestly they would have they would have smelled and in that time that was the average that was, these were common people and not only that, they're under this oppressive Roman rulership. They are being dominated by a, a Roman empire that had complete authority over them. And the rulers of that Roman empire would come and they would go and the kingdom would change and transition every time a new dictator, a new king, a new ruler came in. And they would do all sorts of things. You didn't know when a new Caesar came in, you very likely and most likely your town would be renamed. Many of the towns that are, that are named things today aren't the name of the town that was then because between now and then, there's been some rulers that have changed and they changed the names of the towns because they wanted to. They changed the geographic boundary. You could be in one town one day and they come in and they change the boundaries and you're in another town another day. You didn't know and you had nothing that you could do about it. You could revolt if you wanted, but it could cost you your life. The Caesars would do whatever they wanted and the people, these peasants, these common people were under the rule of this mighty king and they were dominated by the mighty kingdom that ruled over them. And these people were marginalized. They were fringe people. They did not matter to anybody. They did not matter to those in authority. They did not matter to the kingdom that ruled over them. They, didn't, they were the outcasts of society. Even their own religious leaders, even their own religion neglected them. 
They wouldn't send rabbis to go visit. They didn't get special guests to come. People weren't investing themselves in these people. They were enduring them. These people were not considered to be significant in any way, shape, or form. But the kings that ruled over them, now they, they were significant. They were important. They were the who's who. These people were the ones that people looked to. I mean, come on. They named towns after them. When a new Caesar would come in, he'd change the name, Caesarea Philippi. That was named after Caesar Philip. Tiberius was named after Caesar Tiberius. And they would change the names of these towns. In the town, the king got to do what he wanted to do, whatever he wanted to do. And a new Caesar would come in and they would change the rulership. They would change the names. They would change all of these things. And these common people had nothing to say about it. They had no input in anything. They didn't get to vote. These were neglected people. These were simple people that were being ruled over by an evil, dominant, oppressive, dictator king and forced to submit to a kingdom ideology of an evil Roman empire and the Caesars that led it. They didn't care. And church, that was the situation in the day in which we're looking at here in Romans chapter 6. That was the condition of the people. And I wanted, you to, I wanted to explain that because it was into that situation, into this people group. Here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus into this time. It was weird. He wasn't, he wasn't a man from the big city. Jesus was a man from Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? He was not a man who came from money. He was in poverty. He was a very simple, he lived a simple life with simple people in a very simple home. Jesus was not, when he was growing up, Jesus was not powerful. Jesus was not famous. In fact, Jesus was a peasant, just like those around him. He grew up like they did. His dad was a carpenter. His dad worked every day to try to make ends meet, to try to put food on the table. He grew up in a small little rural town. Listen, Jesus, Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. This is where he came from. He grew up as a peasant in every way that the peasants grew up. Jesus was poor. Jesus was humble. Jesus came from simple circumstances. Yet, Jesus becomes this magnificent rabbi. This rabbi that's drawing people by the thousands. And he draws these people because he relates to those who are marginalized. He relates to those who are overlooked. He relates to those who are outcasts. He relates to those people who are depressed. He relates to those who are poor. He is not like any other leader that these people had ever seen in any area of their life before. And because of all of that, these people, there's a curiosity that's drawing these people to Jesus. They want to come see him. They want to come hear him. They want him to teach. They want to come and be a part of this man who loves 
loves them because his personality reflects that. They want to come to this man who's able to heal their sicknesses and to cast out demons. This man who cares, this man who understands, this man who is one of us. And these people come. So this is the area. This is the area that Jesus is at. This is the geographic location that we see him in. And these are the people that are being drawn to him. The scene and the settings, these are are the people. And now Luke begins to share with us what Jesus started to teach. And he moves into the Beatitudes. And in verse 20 he says this. I love this. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. We see that a number of times in scripture when Jesus is ministering. He lifted up his eyes. And this is what I believe that Jesus did. That Jesus lifted up his eyes to his disciples. And he went around and he looked around. And he got eye contact. He connected eye to eye. And he looked at people. And he let them know they were important by taking the time to connect with them. I'm reading this book on generational legacy. It talks about, in the book, it talks about how we're oftentimes, our kids grow up, and and there comes a point when their friends become their core, and sometimes the family becomes the enemy. And they're talking about this process, and probably many of us have seen that happen, Again, it's not a point of condemnation. This is a point where, you know what, we're going to do some teaching in the year to come about some of this because I want to see some of these things turned around. I don't want you to go through some of that stuff, some of the things that I've been through, some of the things that you've been through. But then he said this. He said, one of the, it's been proven that one of the most important and profitable things a parent can do is this, meaningful eye contact. It's taking the time when your kids are looking ready to leave in the morning to pull them aside, to look them in the eye and let them know, I love you and you're important to me and you belong here. And in the afternoon when they get home, I missed you. We needed you. And I'm so glad that you're home because this is where you belong. It's eye contact, and this is what Jesus did. Jesus reached out, and he begins to take the time to look around and to get eye contact with each and every person that he was looking to get eye contact with in that moment. And Jesus looked him in the eye. And then he said this. Then he said, blessed are you who are poor. What were those people? Blessed are you who are poor. Jesus was making it personal in his eye contact and in his words. Blessed are you who are poor. They'd never heard anything like this before. Wait a second. No, we're cursed because we're poor. Or we're cursed, therefore we are poor. And he's looking at these people and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
He was doing something, preaching something these people had not ever heard before. Next verse, verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry. Do you know what those people were? They were hungry. And Jesus was saying, blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. They'd never heard that before. Blessed are you who weep. You know, I think Jesus was looking around, and I think there was people in that crowd that day that had tears streaming down their face. And I think Jesus looked at them, and he looked at them eye to eye, and he said, blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you in your brokenness. Blessed are you in your pain. Blessed are you in your sickness. Blessed are you in your life. And he went on, he said, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Hey, you, we may have sorrows today in this moment, oh, but rejoicing comes. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Oh, wait a minute now, Jesus. You've gone a little too far here. <laughs> Bless, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm blessed when I have got all the stuff I want. I'm blessed when I'm rich. I'm blessed when I'm full. I'm blessed when I'm happy. I'm blessed when I'm loved. And Jesus is saying no. No. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Wait a minute. That does not compute. That doesn't make sense with the world in which we live. And I want you to see this. Jesus says all these things, and I'm going to talk more about these in the coming week here, or coming next week, and we'll talk more about some of that. But I want you to see this, that Jesus says these things, and then he calls himself Son of Man. Son of Man is a term that Jesus used multiple times. In fact, he used that term over 80 times in the New Testament towards himself. And it is taken from the Old Testament. It is, he is calling himself the Ancient of Days. He is saying right there, that statement, Son of Man, doesn't mean he's not God. He's just the Son of God. It is a statement of deity. He is saying, I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. I am the Son of Man. And they knew what he was talking about. They knew he was saying, I am the Ancient of Days, and I was before time began and shall be after it ends. And on his account, all these things shall happen. And then he says in verse 23, and he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Re rejoice in what day? In the day he just described. Rejoice when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice! Not hearing any hallelujahs. <laughs> Rejoice and leap for joy. For behold, this is what he says. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
And then Jesus is about to turn this corner and I think he, he again lifts up his head and he starts to look around and he's looking at a different crowd this time. He's looking, he's getting eye contact with different people. He's looking at some of the, I'm sure some of them the Pharisees and some of the Sadducees, some of the followers of those men. The, the crowd was diverse. And he was looking around and he gets eye contact with them. And then he, and he says this. He says, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Next verse. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. He's looking around. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak. Listen to him. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is bringing us this juxtaposition. He, he's bringing these comparisons between these two different types of humanity. And he's placing them side by side and showing us the difference. And those two places, there, there's those who will receive a blessing and those who receive a woe. And he's comparing these two together. Jesus is just blowing their mind. I just wanted to go through this like this with you so that you could see just the unique kind of ministry that he's bringing here. He is inverting. He, he's creating this whole new paradigm of the kingdom in which people are citizens. He's comparing to the citizens of this time to our citizens of this kingdom that he's introducing to them. He's flipping everything upside down. He's just blowing their mind with this new teaching. Wait a second. This is all different. We've never heard anything like this before. We've never seen anybody speak with such power and authority about such things that we never dreamed or even imagined could happen. And he shows them in this moment that Jesus is king. Amen. He is, in fact, listen, he's, he's sharing with these people who have been under the dominant rule of Caesar that Jesus truly is the king of all kings. And he's saying to them, and I am above Caesar. I am above the ruler that's overseeing your life. I am above the authority that you have had to be submitted to for so long. He is bringing them a kingdom. And he's saying, and in this kingdom that I'm sharing with you now, I will be king forever. I will rule and reign as the king forever and ever. And it is a kingdom that he's sharing that has different values, has a different ethic. This kingdom is completely different. It's going to be, as you see in the scriptures, diametrically opposed to the kingdom that was overwhelming their life in this moment. It was different than all the kingdoms on earth. And in every way, Jesus is bringing about this counterculture. And Jesus is introducing a countercultural kingdom ethic. The, he, he's introducing something that's revolutionary. You know, in this part, and again, Jesus wasn't necessarily a revolutionary in the way in which we sometimes think of revolutionary, but he was a cultural revolutionary. And he still is. See, our cultures all tend to gravitate towards 
all of the things that he just said, woe to those. We, we tend to be drawn to those places where I just want to be happy, I want to be fed, I want to be liked, I want to be accepted. And Jesus has this completely different culture in mind. Jesus was countercultural there, and he's still countercultural today. Jesus isn't looking to fit into our culture. He's looking for us to make a decision in our lives that we're going to submit to a new kingdom, to a new way, to a new Lord in our lives. And just as Jesus is countercultural, he is calling the church to be a countercultural kingdom community as well. We're not intended to fit into the culture in which we live. We should be standing out against it. We should be standing out in the midst of it. And as Jesus is teaching, the church should be a, a community of countercultural people who handle their wealth differently than the world does, who handle fame differently than the world does, who handle power differently than the world do that the world does. Comfort, all the things that we look for, we should be handling those things in a different way because our citizenship is now different. When Jesus Christ becomes the Lord and the Savior of your life, we become citizens of a new kingdom. We become citizens of a new king. And that changes us. Because church, whatever kingdom, wherever, whatever kingdom your heart is in will affect the things you do. Because whatever kingdom you're a part of Whatever kingdom you're submitted to, it will affect your lifestyle. It will affect how you live. It will affect what you do. It will affect what you say. Identity establishes our lifestyle. What are you finding your identity in? Look, for so many people, if you see yourself as citizens of your kingdom... If you find your identity in the fact that I'm an American, I'm, I'm German, I'm Asian, I'm Mexican, I'm African, I'm, if we're finding our identity in our nationality, our political party, our ideology, your race, your culture, your creed, woe to you. Not that those things don't have a place in our life. I'm not saying that. But is that where you're finding your identity? Is your identity in the fact that you're white or black or brown? I'm a member of this church or that church or this part or that part. Uh, Where are you finding your identity? Because if it's in anything other than Jesus, woe to you. That's what he's saying. That's a statement of judgment. That's a curse. For those whose citizenship is in his kingdom, though, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in their life, who have accepted Jesus as King, for those who belong to his kingdom and are submitted to the kingdom values, the kingdom ethics, the kingdom rules, who have submitted themselves to obey and to follow after Jesus Christ, submitting to him as the King, as Jesus, as Lord in our life, he says, blessed are you. 
Blessed are you. And church, this comparison that he's making, what he really is doing is he's explaining, he's really distinguishing between happiness and blessedness. See, in this world, we often seek happiness. In America, you know, we really, I'm not sure we've done ourselves a favor because our nation has been built on the pursuit of happiness rather than the pursuit of blessedness. But the pursuit of happiness is contingent on your circumstances. Oh, I can be happy when things are good. I can be happy when my relationship is strong. I can be happy when my bank account is full. I can be happy when everyone around me is is doing well. I can be happy when my circumstances are good. But I can't be happy when my circumstances aren't good. So what do we do? We are spending most of our time trying to protect the good circumstances and change the bad circumstances. We're just dealing with one circumstance after another after another because we have a pursuit of happiness. And our happiness is contingent on our circumstances. So what do we do? We try to change our circumstances. I'm not happy in my marriage. Let me change the circumstances. I'm not happy in my job. Let me change the circumstances. We want to continually change the circumstances because we have a pursuit of happiness. But listen, blessedness has nothing to do with circumstances. Blessedness has everything to do with God. And, and the Lord will never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he will stick closer than a brother. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he will come to you. And he will bring his joy. He will bring his peace. He will bring into your life this place of comfort. This place where he comes to bring into your heart the very presence of the Almighty. He is gracious, he is compassionate, he is giving, he is good, and he is good all the time. Amen. Amen. So church, for those whose hope resides right here, right in this life, in this kingdom, woe to them. For those who are patient, for those who have humbled themselves before God, for those who by God's grace belong to Jesus, have given him their life and received the forgiveness that Jesus and only Jesus can bring by his grace, for those whose citizenship is found in heaven, and that's first and foremost where their identity comes from, blessed are they. Why? Blessed are they because their reward awaits them. Worship team, would you come back up? So what Jesus is teaching is vitally important. And I want you to hear this. For those whose identity is rooted in the world and in what this world has to offer, for those whose identity is in this kingdom, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. For those whose identity is rooted in Jesus, that Jesus Christ is their king, they've received by grace, not by works. They've received Jesus Christ into their life and are now, have been grafted in, have become citizens of his kingdom. This is as close to hell 
as they'll ever get. Listen, for those who this is their heaven, Jesus says, woe to them, because hell awaits them. And for those who belong to Jesus, he is the only way. For those who belong to Jesus, and this is our hell. Church, blessed are we, because it only gets better after this. So, I want to pray, but first let me ask you this question. Where is your identity rooted? Is your identity rooted in this kingdom? Or is it rooted in his kingdom? Where's your primary citizenship? I don't know. Look at your behavior. It will tell you. I know we don't sometimes don't like this. But Jesus says, you want to know what kind of tree it is? If it's a good tree or a bad tree, look at the fruit. I don't know what citizenship I have. Look at the fruit. And I want you to know, the good news is this. That Jesus Christ came to save those who are marginalized those who are outcasts, those who are hurting, those, he says, I understand, I've been through that. And he's drawn you here today and extended his hand, not because he wants you to feel bad about this, it's because he wants you to see the truth of where you are so that he can bring you to where he is. Amen. Amen. We receive that. We don't earn it. You don't have to, like, becoming a, a citizen of the United States. You got you to gotta work. You got to earn that. Hey, becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God is something that we receive. Jesus Christ has already paid the price and stamped your passport. Will you receive him today? Let's pray. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this time. And I pray, God, if there are any that are apart from you today, they would draw near unto you. They would call out, Lord God. Lord, you said, come. If they're weary, if we're burdened, if we're heavy laden, come to you. God, I pray that those in this place that are apart from you would reach out their hands and say yes to you, Jesus. You understand where each and every one of us is. And you come to set us free to free us from this oppressive culture, to free us of the unfair way in which people are treated, to come and to bring into our lives a freedom that only the Son can bring. Come on, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Call out to Him today. Call out His name. Let Him know, Jesus, I need you. I need you. Make it personal. Let Jesus look into your eyes. Make it personal. Come on, every voice. Who 
to heart, understand that I love you and I care about you and I want you to have the truth. I want you to be able to receive that truth unto your heart. And now I want you to take that truth, the light of God, and go out there and go be that light. Go be the church that God has called you to be. Go share the love of God. Go share the truth of God. Go share the heart of God. Go be the church. Amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. God bless y'all.